Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. When stuff hits the fan, when we're in relationship to one another and things don't go right, when the world crumbles, when stuff just isn't working, when there's injustice and corruption, when people hurt our feelings, the list goes on. What are we called to do? I think scriptures address this in a sermon that I have entitled, What Does Love Got to Do With It? got to do with it. (laughs) Let's read what Paul has to say. He says this. I'm going to start from verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. As the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit this morning to open our eyes to the truth of your word, not that we would leave this building with a bunch of information and a lecture and some points on moralism, but Lord, that we would leave with a deeper understanding of a God who loves us. You're our only hope, Lord. Sometimes we need you to show us that that is indeed the case. So give us a a deep burning need and a desire and a desperation not only to walk in love towards those who don't deserve it, but to be loved by God when we don't deserve it as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, we spoke on imitating God. In this verse, Paul begins to go into more how that is done. Really, he begins to define. He tells us to do it, but he also tells us how to do it and what that actually looks like. I want you, before we get from Paul what that means, I want you to think about it in, in, terms, uh, in, in these terms. Ask yourself, what would you naturally do to imitate someone that you had a profound reverence for? Or maybe someone that you just really loved or liked or liked to be around. Someone that you looked up to. How, would you, how do you naturally imitate someone like that? Because we do, right? We turn out just like our parents. We maybe imitate uh, we imitate our, 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 our co-workers if we look up to them, or our boss if we look up to them, our teachers, our professors in life, uh, our older siblings. What are some of the things that we do? How does that look? I would say that we probably imitate the characteristics that most define the people that we love. It's those things about them, and and probably for, for us, we also imitate the things about them that we don't necessarily love. So we take it all in, but especially the characteristics that most define them. Just to give you an example of what this looks like for me and some of the people on staff, there's a a pastor on staff by the name of Ryan Hilner. He used to be the youth pastor in Carpinteria, now oversees all of it. you, You can usually see him at the SB campus. We call him Riz. Riz is an interesting person for a variety of reasons, but one is in his language. Uh, he, has, he has his own language, and his language has changed the language of the staff and some of the people that come to our church. I can't quite express or, 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 or I don't even know how to describe how he talks other than to say that if you took a full sentence and removed the predicate, that's kind of how he addresses people. So it's just like subject and verb. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you an example. 
If I were to walk up to Riz and say, hey Riz, there's a, oh, I'm so bummed, I went to Starbucks and this person cut me off in the parking lot. Instead of saying, I can't believe that someone would stoop to that level to do such a thing to you and hurt your family. Are you okay? Instead, he would say something to the effect of, who does? Who do- someone cut me off in the parking lot, who does? Or if I were to tell him about something I saw like on this sick website or some deal I saw on Ikea and I'd be like, hey, I found this awesome thing. Instead of saying, that is an interesting concept. That is an awesome product that you have found. Instead, he might say, oh, I mean, maybe do, maybe get, maybe do. In other words, there's only subject and verb. There's no predicate in the sentence. Of course, we have imitated this as a church staff and some of the people, actually, I'm looking at some of you, you talk like this too. Uh, we've, uh, one of the ways we've adopted this is I'll, I'll hear other staff members, instead of telling me to do something or telling Ryan to do something, instead of saying, hey, Ryan, why don't you go over there and uh, make everything happen, straighten this up, or uh, can you administrate over there, they would, they'll just say something to the effect of, Riz, do. Do what? I don't know. And this is the problem of everybody that comes in to visit the staff or the church is that they're completely lost. Church planters will come in to, you know, be equipped to, to plant or birth a church and they'll listen to this lingo, Riz do, who does? I mean, best thing ever, maybe do? And they're just completely lost. Who are these, who are these lunatics? This language doesn't make sense. But over time, if you know Riz, love Riz, you begin to take on the language of Riz, you have Riz language. All of us tend to speak like this. It makes sense that when you spend enough time around somebody, you begin to talk like them, you begin to act like them, you begin to imitate them. And it makes sense in that relational way that if we wanted to imitate God, we would take on his most defining characteristics. For God, that's easy. It's love. God is love. The objective of Christian life then is one of love, but then that just opens up 15 other questions. I'll just concentrate on one question because I have like 30 minutes, but what is love? If you were to Google definitions of love, you will get 340 million answers. I'll just give you a couple of them. Wikipedia says that love is an intense Feeling of deep affection. Wikipedia is a little bit confused because it's open source because right after that it says that love might be a sexual attachment. Urban Dictionary describes love as you always want to be together with that person. (laughs) Webster slightly more scholarly version than Urban Dictionary puts it this way. It's a strong affection for another person arising out of personal ties. It gives an example of that as being children. So you love each other because you're you're tied together by your child, I guess is what that means. One popular song puts it this way. Well, when we are together, I need you forever. Is that love? What is love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. So based on that popular song, it seems that love is codependency. Well, what is love? Are all of those definitions the same? Some of them are contradictory. What is love? The problem, and we could go on for days, specifically for 340 million examples, but 
I hope that you can see in just a few of these, many of us can resonate with, the problem with the cultural definition of love, the common cultural definitions of love, I should say, is that it doesn't always seem to work as we might think it does. For example, if love is, as Wikipedia describes, an intense feeling, well, what happens when you, you get bored? Are we to think that love, which is so powerful, can be thwarted by our boredom? I get bored on a daily basis. If love is an attraction, what happens when you lose your youthful appearance? Is that to say that we can only really experience love until a certain age? If love is wanting to be together, Urban Dictionary, you always want to be together. If love is wanting to be together, what happens when you show up to a calm group for the hundredth time and that, that person, you know who I'm talking about? You just had it up to here with them. Maybe it's the person who's just talking the whole time or maybe it's the person that's all about them or it's that younger 20-year-old kid who's always spouting Greek terms and you just want to get into like real life. Whatever it is, it's that person that gets on your nerves. If love is wanting to be together, well, how do you express love in a calm group where you don't necessarily want to be together? If love is held together by your kids, what happens when your kids leave for college? I don't know anything about it, but I've heard about it. The empty nest syndrome. Is love possible in that situation? If love is codependency, what happens when the one who you are dependent upon disappoints you? These are some things to think about. The most common conceptions of love in our culture seem to have to do with romance or preference. And they're very flimsy at best. And not only that, but the version of love that we catch ourselves using even seems to depreciate with usage. It's like taking a car off the lot. It starts off shiny, it starts off great, but as soon as you bring it off the parking lot, it goes down like 10 grand. Eugene Peterson puts it in the same way concerning love in his book, Practice Resurrection. I love this. He says, if we are fortunate, not all of us are, we hear the word love first from our parents. Later, we use it ourselves with childhood friends. Still later, as adolescents in fumbling attempts at intimacy. A few of us, by no means the majority, bring more serious considerations into the word when we use it in our marriage vows. But it isn't long before we use the word at random, cheapening it to the flatness of a synonym for like. I love the outdoors. I love that dress. I love this movie. I love those Yankees. Love is probably the most frequently used word in our vocabulary for saying what we like, what attracts us, what we hunger for. And what's fascinating about that usage, which I, I feel like I use on a regular basis, if I were to be honest with myself. What's fascinating about that, and scary even, is that these common cultural definitions of love, whether they be romantic or preferential or having to do with liking something or attraction or hunger, all have one thing in common. And that's this. Whether the relationships that we're in work or not. If that's the type of love that we're using to, uh, by definition. The, whether relationships work or not depends on how much we can get out of it to begin with. 
instead of what we are able to give, the amount of love based on this definition that we experience is going to be based on how much we can get out of that relationship from another person. That is not love. The Bible calls that lust. It's kind of a weird thing to say because we generally think of lust as a sexual sin, right? And it covers that, but it's much more broad. Here's what I mean. Love in its most simple form we see expressed in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Walk in love. So the command is, okay, love everybody. Love especially each other. But what is love? If we were to take on some of these connotations, some of these definitions, we would actually be disobeying the command of God to love others even though we feel like we're loving other people. So, what does Paul mean by walk in love? Well, he explains it in the next, in the predicate part of the sentence, as the Messiah also loved us. So in other words, before we can love each other, we need to model our love based on that which is shown to us by Jesus. How is love shown to us by Jesus? Well, he goes into in detail and describes it to us in the last half of that sentence. As he loved us and gave himself for us. Christ gave, if you want to know everything you need to know about love in five words, Christ gave himself for us. Christ gave himself for us. That tells us a variety of things that will change how we interact with one another as the church. In other words, love is self-giving. If you are in a relationship that is marked by the love of Christ, it is marked not by how much you are able to get from that other person. It is marked by how much you are willing to give to the other person. It's self-giving. Christ gave himself. How are you to walk in love? Well, walk in love with each other like you see Christ walking in love towards you. Christ gave himself. But... Paul qualifies that even further. It's not just self-giving, because here's the problem with self-giving. I feel like I give myself to a lot of people all the time. I've been feeling that way since preschool. I remember once when I was in preschool, I was on this tricycle. A kid walked up to me and he said, if you give me that tricycle, I'll be your best friend for life. And I gave him the tricycle. I was being self-giving. I gave him what was of value to me. But it wasn't because of him. It was from an, well, it was from a self-motivated, selfish motivation. Motivated motivation. <laughs> so Christ doesn't just give himself. He gives himself for us. Therefore, love is self-giving, but it's also other-centered. See, I'll give a tricycle to someone if they'll be my friend. I'll talk to you if you make me feel better about myself. I'll buy you a meal if you return the favor a month later. Things like that, right? Even the things that we think we do out of love are not purely altruistic. They come from a deeper, deeper desire, perhaps, to get something in return. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. Christ is the only one who loves perfectly. His love is self-giving and other-centered. That would mean that love, then, cares for others and cares about others at the expense of self. 
meaning I am more concerned or I should be more concerned about what you are getting out of this relationship than what I am getting by you being in relationship to me. Lust, then, is the opposite of that. Lust, if love is caring about others at the expense of self, lust cares about self at the expense of others. So obviously that covers all the, the sexual temptation and sexual sin, but it also covers a whole lot more. It covers your career. It covers your family relationships. covers your behavior. It covers uh, the way you interact with other people. Anytime you are caring about yourself at the expense of someone else, it's from a root sin of lust. Love is the opposite. And in heaven, we are described that our experience for all of eternity will be one in which all lust and sin is removed and all the love of God is experienced. So what does that mean? Well, now we've removed the connotations of culture, hopefully. So now you don't think, okay, love is romantic, so God is love, heaven is love, uh, heaven is God loving me, so heaven is romantic. I don't know. Heaven's going to be, you know, we can remove the, the hallmark concept of a Cupid on a cloud playing a harp to us. That's what heaven is going to be like. It's not what the heaven's going to be like. Revelation tells us vividly in Revelation chapter 21 that God's dwelling will be with humanity. We will be his people and he will be our God. And it goes on to describe just fascinating things like there will be no need for a sanctuary. There will be no need for a son. Why? We won't have a need for a sanctuary. God himself will be our sanctuary. We won't have a need for a sun or a moon or stars because God himself, his glory will shine so brightly that we won't have a need for anything else to shine. Do you hear that theme? We won't have a need for anything else to shine. We will have been so radically transformed from our inward introspective navel gazing that is the sickness and sin of all humanity to see something more beautiful and more glorious than ourselves. That's heaven. We'll be able to do that and to enjoy it. The chapter goes on to say that all kings and all presidents will bow before this God. It goes on to say that the gates of heaven will not close because they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it to surround the throne of God. That's heaven. So if heaven is the fullest experience of God in all of his glory and all of his self-giving love and it's just us experiencing that and, 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 and enjoying that and glorying in that, what do you think it would be to remove God and to leave people steeping in the unadulterated measure of their lust. Well, it's not heaven. You could use your imagination. If you can't use your imagination, well, that's why we have people like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. This is actually the same thing the Apostle Paul would say in different words in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, when he said that the unrepentant, those who do not want in this life, do not want anything to do with God, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What is that eternal destruction? 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So when Paul says in four words, hey, church, walk in love. He's not saying, hey, all the world needs are some random acts of kindness. You know, just do a couple good deeds here and there. Just pepper some good thoughts and some good vibes and some good energy and wash someone's car and feed somebody and the world will be taken care of. We have seen that the world needs something far more powerful than a few random acts of kindness. Do those random acts. Maybe not so random, maybe intentional. But the world needs something more than that. The solution to the broken world around us is not to do a few good acts. The truth is, we are so, uh, to put it in the words of Martin Luther, sin is to be curved in on itself. And we are so curved in on ourselves that I don't even know I, I, I think that what I'm doing is love when in reality, even when, even when I don't even understand it or recognize it all the time, even my best intention, well-intentioned, best acts of love come from a motivation of self-serving purposes. So what the biblical diagnosis is of all of humanity is that you need love. You need the real thing. And the diagnosis and the prescription we see vividly in 1 John chapter 4 from the love apostle, as someone called him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, he said, The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. The cure for a world that is broken from a lack of love is not a few random acts of kindness. It is a God of love. John would go on to say in the 10th verse, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to think about that for a second. A lot of people think that the gospel is to do things in the world. Those are the implications of the gospel, but the gospel itself is good news about something that has already been done. The gospel is not, as John so vividly put it, the gospel is not that we love God so well, we don't. The gospel is that God loved us when we don't deserve it by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is not a word we use all the time. But in, in our English, it means something like this. It, it speaks of a sacrifice that satisfies. We don't use propitiation a lot because we don't offer burnt offerings a lot. At least I hope we don't. That'd be creepy. A, a propitiation looks back to the Old Testament when the people of God, the Hebrews, would offer a burnt offering and it would be described in some of those books as the smoke going up into the, in, uh, into the, the, the nostrils of God and pleasing him by virtue of the sacrifice that was given. Meaning that God was made satisfied by a sacrifice given. It was the right sacrifice. It was a good sacrifice. It was a timely sacrifice. And we're told that Jesus himself was the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfied our sin. 
Paul says this again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 in our verse. Walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. Listen to this. A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. I want you to base your entire life off that hinge of a sentence. This is what I mean. What Paul is saying about Jesus is that Christ's offering of love to the Father and for humanity in his death and resurrection was the perfect act of love. We love imperfectly because our motives are messed up. Jesus loved perfectly. And this scripture tells us that because of Christ's offering of love, God was fully satisfied in him. What does this mean for us? The prophet Isaiah would tell us in Isaiah 53, uh, some of you know this very well, the picture of the suffering servant, where the prophet Isaiah tells us that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was crushed and bruised for our iniquities and for our chastisements. By his stripes we were made healed. And he goes on in the latter part of that chapter to say in verse 10 and 11, the Lord was pleased to crush his son severely. Why? End of the section, it says, because the father will see it out of his anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. That's why the apostle Peter would later reiterate that saying, by his stripes we have been healed. We've been healed from our sin, from our shame, from condemnation. And it is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that the Christian ought to rejoice in. And when the Christian puts their faith and their trust in Jesus, the Bible, especially the Apostle Paul, vividly describes that there is between the sinner and Christ a union wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are not just on the outskirts looking in and admiring Christ, but that we are brought together with him in union with Christ. So much so that when the father, when it could be said that the father is pleased with his son, it could just as, just as accurately be said that he is pleased with all those who are in Christ. I want you to think about that for a second. Think of all the things that you wake up in the morning shamed and condemned by, Christian. Things that you struggle with, things that you have messed up, things that have have been done towards you. And I want you to dwell on this truth that if you have been unified with Christ, no matter what you have done in this life, the Father is just as pleased with you as he is his perfect son. That's where your healing comes from. Elise Fitzpatrick, in a book that has shaken my life, and many of you, because he loves us, she writes, of this verse that we're studying, are you more aware of what the verse is commanding you to do? To imitate God and to walk in love? Or are you more aware of what the verse says about who you are? A beloved child, 
or what Christ has done, loving you and giving himself up as an offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, the main point of this text is, yes, walk in love. That's the command. But the motivation, the power is you are loved. The command is to walk in love, but the power behind it is that you are loved undeservedly. Think of how that would change our relationships if we just, just drank it a little bit. To love each other as Christ loves us means very simply that we are to serve others at our own expense. And this isn't a bunch of random acts of kindness, but that term that Paul uses to walk refers to an ongoing habit. Can you imagine what this would look like on a day-to-day basis? If we were to be self, uh, self-giving and other-centered, well, marriages would be a little bit more strong. Not because the, the, the spouses in them are stronger, but because God's love is stronger. And because it holds them together even when they disappoint one another. Can you imagine how relationships would be transformed by this? Our relationships in this church would be based on how much we can give to one another, not how much we can take from one another. Wow. We'd be less devastated by people who betray us and who let us down because we're not in the relationship to be pleased by them, but to serve Even romantic relationships would be changed because they would not be built solely on attraction. Not that attraction is bad, but not solely on attraction, but on an inner divine drive to bless someone other than yourself for the rest of your life. Work from nine to five would be done with integrity and honor and fervor. Even when nobody's watching, when there's no pay raise involved, Not because you're motivated for those things, but because you want to be a blessing because you have been so deeply blessed. I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, just those points right there makes me see how hard it actually is to walk in love with sinners, among whom I am probably the worst. Is it hard for you to walk in love with family, with coworkers, with people who have wronged you? In the day-to-day routine of life, if that's the case, you're in good company. You're in a church. And there are things like this that the Bible commands us to do, namely to love like God loves that are only possible for the person who has been drinking deeply of God's love towards them. Meaning, listen, you will only be able to love other people in direct proportion to how much of God's love you have experienced for yourself. Say it again. That person who cut you off at Trader Joe's, that dad who abandoned you, your brother who ripped you off, that business partner who cut you out of a certain amount of money, the person in the church who is gossiping about you, you will only be able to love them in proportion 
to how much of God's love you have experienced for yourself. Again, Elise Fitzpatrick, any obedience that isn't motivated by his great love is nothing more than penance. You'll find yourself, when you're in a dry season in which you have been disconnected from the love of God towards you and yet you're trying to walk in love, you're trying to be holy, you're trying to good, you will find at some point that you have been doing all of those things to win the love of God for yourself or to gain the approval of the person you are trying to love. That's why the predicate of Paul's sentence is so profound. Walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. The world needs to see that kind of love. Not Hathaway, not Wikipedia, not Urban Dictionary, not even Webster and all of its scholarly wisdom. The world needs to see a transcendent love. A costly devotion. An affection that transcends circumstances. A self-sacrificial, other-centered love that has as its power the love of Jesus Christ on a cross. They're not going to see it by a bunch of Christians just trying harder to love. They're going to see it when we are enjoying Jesus in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit when we begin to live by his life and his death and resurrection in ordinary relationships with one another. When you have been so filled to the brim with the love of God towards you that you walk out there and someone pushes your button and the only thing that comes out is the love of God. That stuff just doesn't happen when you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning. It comes from the Christian who's tired, who's broken, who's been hurt, who's sick and tired of trying to make things happen on their own and who wants a love that is better than the one that they've been trying to show their entire life. And that love has been lavished on the people of God. It's here by virtue of Jesus Christ. So as I pray, let's let's worship the Lord. If you want to throw yourself on the carpet before the King of glory, you can do that. If you want to take communion, remind yourself in a very vivid way of how you've been loved by the, the body that was broken in the bread, the blood that was spilt for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need prayer, you can get prayer. If you're struggling with understanding the love of God because you've screwed up so much in this life, Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would give you supernatural understanding that you would be transformed. God's love is enough for this church. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that you would pour the love of the Father abroad into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. for the broken families, for the disgruntled co-workers, for those who have been harboring decades of bitterness, for those who have betrayed others, for those who have been betrayed, for those who have had abortions, for those who have 
gossiped. And the list goes on, Lord. You know how messed up we are. I'm asking, according to the words of King David in Psalm 139, that you would examine our hearts and see if there's any wayward way in us and show us the way of everlasting. Lord, wash our sins away by your great love. Let the gospel be so loud and boisterous in this place that we would not even be able to see our shame and condemnation. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let that be tangibly true of us this morning. Heal us today. Show us the love of the Father that we might go out and show others the same. Pray these things in Jesus' name.